Well, friends, I'm going to uh, invite you to grab your beverages and huddle close together so you can be warm. And we'll uh, move into our teaching time uh, together this morning. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, when I travel internationally, one of the little games that I like to play is spot the other Canadians. Do you play this game? Right? So uh, when, I, when I used to travel in high school uh, in Europe in the 90s, I would, I would sew a Canadian flag onto my backpack so that wherever you went, you know, you could kind of identify each other with just that knowing nod as you passed each other on the streets of Paris or on a train somewhere in Europe. But recently, there have been stories of flag jacking. Flag jacking, have you heard of this? This is where people from other countries sew Canadian flags onto their backpacks when they travel in Europe so that they are treated like Canadians are treated when they travel abroad. Documented cases mostly involve Americans <laughs> pretending not to be Americans. But what it means is you can't just assume that because a person has a Canadian flag on their backpack now that they're a Canadian. You have to think of other ways creatively to identify them. Now you have to do things like sneak a look at the passport in the lineup when you're going through immigration and see what color is it. Or make a joke about something that only another Canadian would get. Maybe a Tim Hortons or a CBC reference and see if anybody laughs. And then you're like, okay, that's a Canadian over there. But the flag jacking shows me that being a Canadian is about more than just sewing a flag onto your backpack, obviously. It's actually even about more than the nationality that's listed in your passport, although it certainly involves that. In some ways, being a Canadian involves a set of practices, a set of a shared identity that has shaped and defined our consciousness and that you become a participant in. And yes, that is reflected in your passport or in your identification, but it's also reflected in the way that you live and the way in which you are in the world. And that's why you can't just sew a flag onto a backpack and then claim that you're Canadian. It has to run deeper than that. And intuitively, we know that. But we're going to see that particularly as it applies to faith this morning. And throughout the fall, we are going through uh, the New Testament book of Galatians here at Jericho. And Galatians is one of the very earliest letters that was written in the first century. It was written by one of the early missionaries and apostles in the Christian movement named Paul. And it's a very short, very dense book. And it's written in haste to a community living in modern-day Turkey in a region called Galatia. And Paul was the founder of that Christian community. He planted that church, and then he went on to plant other communities. And he heard that they were having some trouble and some challenges. And so he wrote a letter back to them to try and help them navigate their way through some of these challenges. 
And one of the big challenges they were having was the issue of identity because they had two different ethnic groups that were together in one Christian community. They had people who had grown up Jewish and all of their background and history was in a Jewish culture. And then they had people that were coming from the resident culture in Galatia, the Roman culture, the Greek cultural backgrounds that they grew up in. And the people who were Jewish were saying to those others, hey, listen, in order to be one of us, in order to be part of God's new family, the church, we're going to need you to take out dual citizenship. Because we're going to need you to have a passport for this whole Jesus movement. But we also want you to hold a Jewish passport. And you're going to have to practice all of those customs and rules and laws. You're going to have to become part of the children of Abraham following the ancient rules around eating and Sabbath keeping and circumcision and all of the things that marked our identity as a people. And they were arguing this very strenuously. That these external actions are what really marked out the people of God. And they would say things like, but this has been practiced for centuries. Why can't you just participate? It makes it easy to tell who's in and who's out. Pastor Wally talked about that last weekend. So just keep up with it. Would you just take it on? And as modern readers, we might look at this debate and say, I don't know, what's the big deal? Couldn't they just get along? What's the big deal about who they eat with? Can't the Jewish background Christians make some accommodation and just give up some of their practices? Or can't the Gentile or the non-Jewish background Christians make accommodations and just say, fine, we'll change our diet so we can all get along in this new family? But one of the things that we see in the book of Galatians, and we're going to see it again today, is that this runs much, much deeper than what's for dinner. If it was only about the food that was served, then I think they could have said, well, fine, we can make some accommodations and figure out a menu that would work for everyone. Just slap that flag on your backpack, become Jewish in order to become a Christian, you'll be fine. But Galatians chapter 2 is going to ask us to wrestle with a series of deeper questions. This isn't just about the food. It's about what it means to be a member of a community. And what marks you as a member of that community. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to pick up a story uh, and that Pastor Wally read a little bit for us last week. And Paul in Galatians 2 is retelling an incident that he had in a city called Antioch with another one of the early Christian leaders named Peter. And Peter was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples and was close and in that inner circle. And yet Peter had a, quite a remarkable encounter that led him to the place where he became convinced that Gentiles or non-Jews were also being invited to be part of God's family. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 5. And so Peter began to practice eating with Gentiles. But Paul says, we had this situation when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with all the Gentile believers 
who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some of the friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He pulled away. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And Paul says this, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message. So for Paul, this is about something much, much more deeper than food. He says, this is about the truth of the gospel message. I said to Peter, in front of all of the others, since you are a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, uh, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? So, Paul confronts and gets into a very public argument with Peter. These are two of the most prominent leaders in the early Christian movement. And Paul challenges Peter. It says, I opposed him to his face because he was sending the wrong message about what it meant to be part of the people of God. What does it mean to be part of the people of God. That was the question that they were really wrestling with in Galatia. Because the false teachers were arguing, you know, only people that have a, are a part of God's family to Abraham, those people are part of God's family, not the rest of you. And how do you know who are Abraham's children? Well, they're set apart by a set of practices and activities. They practice circumcision of their male children as infants. They set aside one day of the week as a Sabbath. They rest from their labors. They don't eat certain foods like pork that the Hebrew scriptures declared unclean. And so that was what defined and marked them and their experience. And the false teachers in Galatia were saying, if you don't get on board with that stuff, then you can't wear the flag of being a part of God's family. But Paul does some creative flag jacking of his own. And he's actually going to rip some flags off of people's backpacks pretty assertively because he's going to argue for a whole new definition of what it means to be part of God's family. Let's keep reading in Galatians chapter 2 verses 15 and 16. Paul continues his discussion about his interaction with Peter and then he's going to switch from the first person into more of a teaching narrative. And so in verse 15, he's still talking as if he's talking to Peter and saying, hey, listen, Peter, you and I, we're Jews by birth. We're not quote-unquote sinners or outsiders is the word like these Gentiles are, these non-Jews. But we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So Peter and Paul, as Paul carries on his discussion here, he's now talking to the people in Galatia. And relating to them, listen, this story 
is about more than just an argument I'm having with Peter. It's actually about the fundamental conditions of participation in God's family. And the Galatians are struggling with this. They're struggling to try and figure out what is our place in the world? How do we find our way in the world? And that's a story that we all wrestle with because each one of us, regardless of how you grew up, your cultural background or tradition, each one of us is telling ourselves a story about the way that the world is, what are the problems in the world, what are the solutions to those problems, and how do we get there? What does that look like? Um, this graphic was courtesy of John Tyson on Twitter this week. And what he was driving at in this post was that every philosophical system is organized around a set of core questions. What's a problem in the world? What's wrong? How did it get this way? What's the solution? What do I personally need to do in order to achieve fulfillment, hope, and life? And I'm going to jump down to the last two on this chart. I think he helpfully separates out religion from following Jesus. So religion, when you think about religion and a religious system, it's about feeling shame and guilt. And what you end up often hearing is that you can manage those experiences of shame and guilt by doing good things to offset that. But following Jesus comes with a totally different template. It's actually not about participating in quote-unquote organized religion. That's what Paul's saying here. No one's ever made right with God by following a set of rules. Following Jesus is about recognizing, coming to a place of recognition of our own lostness and the lostness of all of humanity in the world. And recognizing and receiving a story of God's grace through faith. And this is not a story of works-based righteousness. And so Paul is going right at this question of, oh, you'd like to know how to participate in God's family? It isn't by obeying and getting the rules all right. It isn't about what ethnic group you were born into. It doesn't matter what kinds of things have marked your life up to the present time, you become part of God's family by faith and by believing in or believing into Jesus. And in some ways, this is like citizenship because you aren't a Canadian just because you were born here or because your ability to answer the right questions on a citizenship exam, which is really hard, by the way. Some of the questions that they ask, I'm like, I don't even know the answer to that one. In some ways, you're a Canadian because you've absorbed what it means to live like a Canadian. You've, you've begun to become a part of the project that Canada is as a nation. You're acting in congruence like a Canadian. And the same is true of participation in God's family. See, sometimes we think about faith as a static set of principles to which a person gives mental assent. 
propositional truths. But when Paul is talking about faith, he's saying this is a dynamic lived experience. It's an encounter with a living person, Jesus. And as I live that out and learn to live that out, I am believing into or declaring my trust and confidence in Christ. The first action is that action of saving faith, of putting our confidence into or in Christ. But you can't simply stop there and call it a day. You continue to live in faithfulness to the one whose family you're a part of. So keep with the metaphor of citizenship for a moment. How many of you at some point became a citizen of Canada? All right, some of you have. So when you became a citizen of Canada, do you remember they asked you to swear an oath? Do you remember? The oath is a little bit long and complicated, and we kind of just gloss over it if you were born here. It's actually a, a recognition of this kind of faith or participation. The oath of citizenship is this. I swear or affirm that I will be faithful. I will bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, and that I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada and I will fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizen. So it's not just a one-time event. You actually are making a promise of fidelity and faithfulness. I'm going to continue to be faithful. I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada. I will fulfill my duties as a citizen. And when you do that, that's when really the citizenship dynamic, yes, it is a moment, but it's an ongoing relationship that you have with the rest of us who are citizens. And that's really what Paul is driving at when he talks about faith. Faith is not merely an intellectual assent to a set of propositional truths. It's a living, breathing, actively oriented set of convictions that result in faithfulness, to faithfully live out your duties as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that's possible because of God's faithfulness to us. God in Christ demonstrated God's faithfulness, and that opens up the possibility for the faithfulness of us as God's people. See, Paul's borrowing here the language of citizenship from the ancient world. He's borrowing and undercutting the language of empire. Because empires, Caesar, army commanders in the ancient world, they would say to those under their protection, listen, I will be faithful to you. I will protect you. I will fulfill my obligations to you. And then I invite you to fulfill your obligations of loyalty to me. See, faithfulness is a two-way street. And Paul is saying that because of God's faithfulness to humanity, that opens up a possibility for you and I to step into that 
and be loyal and faithful in obedience to Christ. And then that opens the door to participate in a community project where together we declare our faithfulness and we embody the faithfulness of God. And that is in and of itself a witness to a watching world that people can also come and participate in faith. See, when you are in Christ, the language of the New Testament often uses this word, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that you have decided to say yes. You want to participate and your life has become defined by a new set of norms, a new set of markers, a new set of practices that unfold for you in obedience and that mark your faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to you. And it isn't the law. That's what Paul's driving at. So let's keep reading because he then gives a personal experience again in Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. He says, so let's just do a thought experiment. Suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Jesus, but then we're found guilty because we abandoned the law. Pretend God wanted the law to keep happening and we didn't recognize that. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin. Christ has led us outside of the bounds. Paul says, absolutely not. Rather, the opposite's true. If I am a sinner, I'm a sinner. If I go back in time and I rebuild that old system of law that I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements, not because the law was bad and wrong, but so that I might live for God. It's a very different lens that he's trying to open up for us. And a legitimate question that comes up or should come up in our minds is, uh, Paul, are you saying, you're saying a new set of criteria is opened up and established for participation in God's new family. Faith in Christ is the way in. Faith in Christ is the way on. But then what in the world was the function of the law? Why did it exist for centuries? Why did God give the law to his people in the Old Testament? And we're going to talk more about this next week because in chapter 3 Paul goes into a very detailed description of the purpose of the law and when he's talking about the law he really is looking at it as God's wonderful gift to God's people he's not looking at it as something horrible that people were were just absolutely um, resistant to but he is looking at it through a lens that it was a temporal event that Torah, the giving of the law in the Old Testament, was an unpleasant but necessary job. And that was, it was to highlight transgressions. In other words, 
the Torah, the, the set of rules and laws around things like food and observances and festivals that governed the communal life of the people of Israel for centuries was intended as a guide or as a tutor. In other places, Paul's going to use the language of a schoolmaster. And then when a person comes of age, they don't need the schoolmaster's tutelage anymore. They can stand on their own. And its primary function was to set in place boundary markers, communal boundary markers that set apart the people of God for a season and for a time. And so Paul then argues that when Jesus came, the Jesus event, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ changed the fundamental prerequisites for participation in the people of God and right relationship with God. See, the function of the law was to say to people, by the way, you're a sinful people if you don't keep me. And so they worked hard to keep the laws and maintain right relationships within the community. And Paul is saying, hey gang, if you want to keep living like a bunch of legalists with these ancient rules being what defines the new community post-Jesus, that's rebuilding something that Jesus tore down. This summer, I took uh, a course on Galatians at Regent with New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. And when he went through this passage, he said, as only someone with a proper British accent can do, if you invoke Torah, Torah will say, oh, hey, by the way, you broke me. And invoking Torah, he said, is like inviting the chief of police around to help you bury the bodies of the people you just murdered. <laughs> you don't want to do it because you're going to be found guilty at the scene of the crime. In other words, Torah, those ancient community boundary markers, are now, post-Jesus, irrelevant and unnecessary for the people of God. They don't define what makes a person a part of God's family. And Paul says, if you want to keep all of those old Jewish rules, it's about going backward. It's rebuilding an old system that Jesus blew apart when he died on the cross in your place and mine. And so if we decide, well, keeping all of the rules is what following Jesus is all about, Paul says, whoa, that's going back in time. And Paul says, no, we can't do that. Because learning and living for God is learning to see all of my life and part of the world through the shape of the cross and the resurrection. Part of the art of being a Christian is learning a cross and resurrection shaped hermeneutic. That all of our reading of Scripture, both the Old Testament, as we look into the Old Testament, we see reflections and forecasting toward Jesus, toward the cross and toward the resurrection. And then the New Testament reflects back on Christ's life and gives us a sense of what is the meaning of Jesus' life and his death and resurrection. And part of being a Christian was that it'll take us all of our lives to figure out what the implications of that are. When our kids were little, we loved the Jesus Storybook Bible 
because it talks about and uses the experiences of the Old Testament and the stories, even some of the ones we went through this summer in our series in Kings, to show clearly how the Old Testament points to Jesus and the New Testament reflects how we're to live in light of the glorious, world-changing realities. And this is where Paul goes next in Galatians chapter 2. The implications for our lives of living in the shadow of the cross. Galatians 2.20, Paul uses this language of dramatic death and resurrection language. He says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ is living in me. And so I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. Because if keeping the law could make us right with God, well, then there was no need for Christ to die. See, Paul, using that image of the cross and the resurrection, the crucifixion, Paul is making an identity statement. He's saying, I am primarily a son of God person. I am a Messiah person. That is my identity. If I'm going to slap a flag on my backpack, it's not going to be my Jewish heritage. It's going to be a Jesus flag. And it's not going to be a law-keeping flag. The main thrust of this verse is the location that Paul sees all of his life to be lived in. He says, I am now living underneath of the protection of Messiah's faithfulness, of Jesus' faithfulness. That's how I see my life. It's not about what foods I eat or don't eat. The impact of Jesus' life and death and resurrection resonate deeply, not just for Paul, but for each and every one of us as well. For each person throughout all of history who chooses to believe into Christ Jesus. Because when you do that, you are making the declaration that Paul made, the old me is dead. The way that I used to find my identity, the way that I used to find my value, using the citizenship analogy again, you're renouncing any and all other citizenship that you previously possessed. You're surrendering all other passports and saying, I have a new identity. I have a new family. I have a new way of being in the world. I am a Jesus person. I'm a son of God person because when you come to Christ, regardless of your background and history, you are no longer the person that you used to be. The life you lived is an old life. It's dead and gone. The life you are living now is only lived in the power and the presence and the indwelling work of the Spirit of God because God loved you and God gave himself for you. And Paul is saying, if you want to know what the litmus test of who's in God's family, 
It's not whether you eat certain foods or obey certain Old Testament laws. That, if you want to make that, that's treating God's wonderful gift of Christ as meaningless and trivial. Don't do it. It's not about the food that's on the table, Paul says. It's about how you got to the table. And you got to the table, you are welcomed at the table of fellowship because Jesus made room for you. Those who are welcome at the table are those who have come really as spiritual refugees from whatever their background or history and they've come as it were to a new country and thrown themselves on the mercy of a loving and living God who said, yes, I welcome you into my family. And then God declares over them, you are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter. When you come to that place in your life where you say, I have no other hope, no other plea than that a merciful God died for me, that Jesus' blood was shed for me. And that's what you say, I want to build my hope and my life on that, nothing less than the faithfulness of God in Christ because God has been so faithful to me. Friends, when you come to that place, that's the crossing over moment where you say, I'm now part of God's family because the only identity that matters is Messiah identity, Jesus' identity. And to get there, you have to die to everything else. You don't get to into God's family by holding dual citizenship and saying, well, I, I love my Messiah identity, but also what if I'm a really good person? Or, but also I grew up in a Christian home or, but also I go to church regularly. When you place your trust in Christ, it is a singular act that says all else is dead and the works-oriented old self needs to die as well. And for me, this is one of the reasons why the celebration of communion becomes such a powerful declaration. Because it's an invitation to revisit again that death to self process. It's another moment to pause and to ask, is there anything still resident in my life that I need to put aside and that I need to actually put to death? and say, I'm done with that. What is it that you need to die to today? Maybe it's a sense of self-reliance and pride. You say, well, I'm a self-made person. You know, I think that God should count some of the great things that I've done in my life. And Paul says, he's going to go on a whole rant later on in the book of Galatians to talk about, oh, all of those things that I used to place my identity and worth in, they don't count. I needed to have died to all of them. Maybe for you, you're on the opposite side of that spectrum and you would say, you know what, Brad, if you only knew some of the darkness of my past, if you only knew, if other people here at Jericho, they would never, never, never say, welcome into the family. You need to die to that belief as well. That is a lie that will hold you captive. That, oh, I could never be good enough for God. 
It's absolutely true. You could never be good enough to get into God's family. But when you come and you say, I am dying to that old way of living, God, will you embrace me in your family? And Jesus says, yes, not because of what you've done, but because what I have done on the cross for you, you're dying to self-reliance and pride. Maybe you have spent your life striving to earn God's favor. You work hard to try and keep a whole set of rules and regulations, trying to keep up and be a good person, be a good Christian. Maybe for you, you would say, well, I'm not trusting in that for salvation, Brad, but you know, isn't it really good if I could do all of those things? Friend, if it begins to seep into and shape your identity, then no. Your only identity is found in being a Jesus person, not in a bunch of activities striving to earn God's favor. Because the other thing that can do is it can bleed into a place of superiority where we begin to think, you know what? I am a pretty good person. Jesus is pretty lucky to have me on his team. <laughs> and that too is an attitude that needs to be put to death. An attitude of superiority. An attitude that says, you know, I've got it really going on. Maybe for you today, there's something particular in your life that no matter how hard you try, it, it keeps surfacing. And it's that area of your life, or maybe there's multiple areas, I know there is in my life, that just keeps coming up and it's an area of weakness for you and no matter how hard you work at it no matter how hard you repent of it and move on and say yes thank you God for your forgiveness it just keeps coming up and it's a particular area of sin and weakness in your life and maybe for you the more you reflect on that, the more you think, you know what, Brad, I probably shouldn't take communion because communion would be for those people who don't struggle with those kinds of things. It would be for those who have got it all together. <laughs> Friends, if communion and if the table is for people who are perfect, then none of us could participate. And that's why here at Jericho, we don't police the table. We say, you know, we practice a table that says if you're in Christ, then you're welcome at the table. Because taking the bread and the cup is not a declaration of, yes, I've arrived. It's a declaration of need and dependence. By taking the bread, which represents Christ's body, you are saying, God, I need the indwelling presence of your spirit to help me to live out my Messiah identity. You have been faithful to me and I want to grow in faithfulness to you. By taking the cup that represents Christ's blood that was shed for us, you're saying, I am leaning in and I am saying, I need the life that comes from Jesus. The very love and grace of God I don't want to trust in my own strength and initiative. That's what the communion table is about. It's about this declaration and saying, the life I live now in this earthly body, I live it by trusting in the Son of God 
who loved me and who gave himself for me. That's what the communion table is about. And Anne-Marie and the team are going to come and lead us in songs of response. And our communion servers will be available at the sides. And our prayer team will be available at the back as well. And the reason that we do this is to just create a, a place where you can respond and where we can help each other learn to live out this practice of declaring our dependence and our obedience and faithfulness to Jesus in what God has done for us. And so you might want to take time in your seat to prepare your heart and just go over and reflect on any areas of your life where you say, God, are you putting your finger on that? Do you want to bring that to my attention? Bring that to Jesus and surrender it and say, God, I don't want to rely on either my goodness and I also don't want to rely on some sense of um, relief or release by good works from sinfulness. I come simply as I am in full dependence and declaration that I need you.